Welcome to Red Flag Radio. We record this show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And welcome to any first-time listeners to this episode of Red Flag Radio. We hope you check out all of the previous episodes that we've recorded um, and you hopefully will have noticed uh, that we're a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about what's going on in politics, we talk about history and specifically historical events that have shaped or have been shaped by the revolutionary socialist tradition. We talk about theory as well. So there's a bunch of different topics um, that we've covered and some aimed at people who are newer to Marxist politics and some aimed at people who um, may be quite familiar with it. So uh, hopefully the descriptions in each episode will give you a sense of which is which, um, but obviously feel free to listen to them all. If you enjoy what you hear, um, please do share it on your social media if you can. <laughs> if Facebook hasn't shut down all of our pages by then, but uh, wherever you can spread the word to people you know who might be interested, that really does um, help us obviously reach more people. But, you know, um, if you think that these are ideas worth sharing, then don't just uh, wait to do that, do it straight away. Um, we have a Patreon account, which is about trying to just uh, get a bit of cash in to help support and develop the podcast. Um, everything that happens with this podcast is uh, all on a voluntary basis. So Liam Ward, thank you again for your time in technically producing this um, podcast in the midst of everything else that you do. And um, all of our guests are all volunteers and activists and people involved in the struggle who are passionate and want to talk about it and have um, people listen and engage with the content. So we appreciate your support at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. Um, my name's Rose Ward and this topic is particularly um, interesting to me in a way because some of what we're going to be talking about um, I've had very kind of close personal experiences with uh, with the far right, with the well, not just the far right, but I have had close experiences with the far right, but also uh, with the kind of mainstream right of politics in Australia and their particular um, levels of uh, disdain um, around sexual diversity and gender diversity, but also um, more broadly about women and their gender politics. And so, our guest today on the show is Red Flag. Uh, contributing editor Louise O'Shea. Welcome back to the podcast, Louise. Thank you for having me. So we've got you on here because you've written a piece um, in the latest edition of the newspaper that, uh, with the headline, Right-Wing Culture Warriors and Rape, that looks at and then was triggered by the initially um, the context and the politics of a story that has been really dominating mainstream media in Australia in the last uh, couple of weeks. And I should say that we're recording this episode on Tuesday, the 2nd of March. So um, if you're listening to this and more uh, detail or more information has emerged since, um, that is why we're not mentioning it because that's when we're recording it. So we're talking about um, the discussion and actually now the wave of allegations that have taken place since 
Brittany Higgins, a Liberal Party staffer, former staffer, um, came out to the media with an allegation of a rape that happened um, on the eve of the federal election in 2019 in the office of a Liberal Party minister in Parliament House in Canberra. And, I mean, you start your article, Louise, by saying this incident is really um, – should come as no surprise. Um, and, you know, I sort of felt the same way. But what was your actual kind of first response when you heard about these allegations and this story? Uh, well, it was actually a surprise, despite what I wrote in the article. Um, because <laughs> the nature of the um, uh Brittany Higgins' account of her experience in Parliament is quite shocking. Like, even as far as rape goes, like, not all rapes involve brute force, and this one did. Not all rapes involve women being left semi-conscious in a place where they're extremely vulnerable, where people who observe them wonder about whether or not they should call an ambulance. So this was a particular, and happening right in Parliament House, this was particularly kind of shocking. But... At another level, it's not shocking because the sort of people that frequent Parliament House, the sort of people that are part of especially this current government and I would argue that are involved on the right wing of politics, there's a certain um, uh, accord between the personal behaviour that's more and more um, coming to light and the political approach that they have to um, the world, to women, to the question of um uh, equality um, because, you know, you have to wonder, like, I mean, obviously sexual assault is endemic and you don't have to be a paid-up member of the Liberal Party to carry it out. On the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised that people who are paid-up members of the Liberal Party and uh, work uh, f- for the objectives of the Liberal Party um, behave in this way because, you know, their politics is cohered around the common enemy is social justice warriors, people who are concerned about this sort of thing, people who um, want to raise the issue of sexism and the way women are treated in society. That's the enemy that they array themselves against in the culture wars sort of environment of Australian politics. So it's no wonder that that spills over into personal conduct as well as um, political positions. Mm. And, like, you know, there's a bunch of examples of that and including... The example that I obviously um, was involved in around the Safe Schools program um, to support LGBTI plus equality um, and inclusion in education in Australia that uh, was subject to a pretty major organised right-wing backlash in 2016 and and continued into 2017. And the idea that um, I guess, you know, uh, that that they want to get across is that people like me have this whole agenda to try to I think they uh said I wanted to destroy civilization you know like destroy the nuclear family and that um there's this whole kind of transgender uh agenda um around uh you know gender diversity and all of the different things that um Scott Morrison particularly actually has said about that you know the thing about gender whisperers the thing about um thinking about people um, in schools discussing and potentially even putting themselves in the shoes of somebody who's same-sex attracted makes his skin 
curl, I think was the word that he used because um, he's an idiot, but, um, you know, <laughs> in conversation with Alan Jones about it. So they kind of have all of these ways to undermine, as you said, people who are trying to fight for social justice and equality. Um, and they know now, I think, that they can't just really say, well, women's place is in the home and gay people make me sick. So they try to have other ways um, to push their agenda. But, yeah, those two things kind of fit together. Um, one thing that yeah, you no, – yeah. I mean, I think it's astounding like that not so few people have made the connection between yeah. Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party's attitude to something like the Safe Schools Program or the Respectful Relationships Program in Victoria and the fact that they have a culture within their party and within Parliament of appalling attitudes and conduct towards women. I mean, they, they made it a, a, a major national campaign to stamp out the Safe Schools Program that's about, as Ros said, that Ros was involved with promoting respect and understanding towards people who are different, trying to understand how social inequality can manifest in your personal interactions with people. They made it a point of pride to campaign to abolish that program, which they successfully did, and disparaged and character assassinated anyone that was involved with it. And then lo and behold, you find they have a culture in, inside their, um, you know, um, corridors of power that reflects those very same values of um, you know everyone in their place the traditional attitudes towards women that make this sort of behavior acceptable and even you know just part of boys will be boys and that no one's put together those two things that this is a party that this is their political vision for society that they're trying to implement through being in the halls of power being elected to government they want to make it okay to brutalize people and you know um and treat people this and you know the the policies that maintain these social inequalities um and it's no wonder then that 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 flows through into the way they see uh, you know individual people uh, in their interactions mm. and so you know scott morrison what is he willing to promote in schools you know he wants to promote Chaplains. the chaplaincy program <laughs> yeah. and you know and that's part of the values that the right are trying to impose it's not about respecting people who don't fit in or are a bit different or have, you know, more barriers to in their lives. Don't try and understand or sympathise with them. Respect the church, you know. If, seek counsel from the major powerful institutions in society that preach, lo and behold, conformity, duty, responsibility to the rules and the expectations that society imposes on you. And that's the right's vision, a, a world where people's, uh, dreams and desires and differences are subordinated to a higher social purpose, which is, you know, doing what you're told, going to work, not not causing trouble at work, fitting into your place in the family, all the structures that keep society ticking over and maintain the privilege of a tiny mi minority at the top who the Liberal Party represent. Mm. And really anyone who's had any contact with these people uh, know, you know, knows that and they've seen it and experienced it and, you know, private school, boys' school, culture in particular. Like we don't need any more research reports really to say that they have terrible attitudes about women um, and we we don't really need any more exposés of what these students will be chanting on a tram in Melbourne about what they want to do to young women and all of this disgusting stuff, you know, it comes up over and over again. You talk about um, – you use the expression 
packs of young liberals in student politics and kind of that training that these people who end up in positions like Scott Morrison and the rest of his cabinet and so on, like you were involved, you've been around student politics um, in Australia in a way that I uh, wasn't because I was in the UK, but I imagine they're very similar to the young conservatives. But did you have any particular um, stories from that time, you know, in the National Union of Students and stuff like that? I mean, there's so many stories, you know, young liberals are renowned for it. But some of the things, um, the other thing I mentioned in the article is some of their practices that are about forging a certain like group solidarity on the right. So mm. at the National Union of Students Conference, there's always an acknowledgement of country at the beginning of the conference. So the young liberals make a point of standing up, singing God Save the Queen to drown out the acknowledgement of country. And, you know, in, in and of itself, it's a... Um, reasonably trivial event but at another level this is about stealing people in the sort of culture and the the brutal hierarchical kick the people at the bottom you know don't apologize you know celebrate the traditional values the traditional hierarchies of society because that's what is going to be expected of you or that's what you know you're going to do once you're in power um, you know, the people have to be taught how to brutalise other people and deprive them of their rights and treat them like, you know, they're, they're worthless. Um, people have to be inculcated in this. And part of those rituals are about, you know, amping people, amping people up and making them feel a sense of group identity and common purpose that makes it seem like this, these sort of politics are okay or they're, you know, they're, they're accepted. Um, and it's all part of training. And as Ross said, it starts early. It starts in in school, like um, uh, that, you know, establishing a sense in these young men and women's minds that you're better than other people. You deserve to be in a position of privilege. You have the right to make decisions that um, impact on the lives of many other people. And so that's how you have, you know, end up with these sociopaths running the country who lock up, you know, um, tiny children on Christmas Island for years on end having committed no crime that happily justify violating people's human rights, some of the most vulnerable people on the planet, justify violating their, their human rights through the refugee policy or, you know, further um, immiserating uh, Aboriginal communities through starving them of funding or control over their lives that, you know, uh, maintain all the inequalities of our society and celebrate them as the natural order of things mm. um, and feel no compunction about passing policies that, that maintain that status quo because the status quo in their minds is something we should all be proud of, that the people that just are the best are at the top and that happens to be them. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's the mentality and that means mistreating people below you, whether it's women in, even in, in, on their own side of politics or whether whoever it is, like power is about being able to mistreat and control um, people below you and, you know, it's, yeah, this is how it can manifest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And also being trained in hating the left, I think is an important part of it and to and to characterize the left as kind of whinging um like loser, do-gooder, whatever and you've got to really like if you upset the left, if you make people on the left angry, then you're doing a good job and that's part of the thing I think as well in terms of their behavior at, at, um in places where they think they can get away with it is sort of to really in, try to incite um, people who just 
know and can see how disgusting they are. They kind of get a kick out of doing that. And I think that as well is the same mindset of like who can you dominate and who can you make to feel inferior and, you know, who can you intimidate and who can you make to feel like they have to do what you say otherwise they're not going to get anywhere. And that includes members of their staff presumably and particularly if they're young women. Um, So that all I think fits together and it is, you're right, interesting that that's not been part of the discussion of these incidents. One thing that has come up um, around Scott Morrison, because he's sort of this bland character in a way, and he kind of revels in that. I think you talk about that, that he um, sort of wants to appear as like, you know, a kind of cozy dad character at times. But actually he has this pretty hardened culture warrior attitude around issues to do with gender and, and, you know, is a racist and all of those things. But what the media picked up on was his comments about, you know, to in order to understand uh, these allegations and what it might have been like for Brittany Higgins, he went home and talked to his wife and had to think about what his daughters might have felt like in that situation or you know, something along those lines, um, mm. which is pretty – like and people are like, well, why does he need a woman to tell him how disgusting it would be to be raped? But I think there's a specific point to be made about that as well in terms of, um, you know, his family and how pure and you know how that his daughters would never be in that kind of situation is part of the implication I think as well, or his wife, you know. Yeah, I mean. This is his like common MO is when there's any issue that involves an emotional dimension to it, he has to talk about it in terms of his consulting with his family and his wife is like his emotional consultant while he goes out and does the hard work of stopping the boats or setting up the robo-debt scheme or whatever other unspeakable stuff that goes on at Parliament House. That's a, a subtle but still um, way to reinforce What's a kind of what are the normal um, gender roles that um, people should um, should replicate? But also the idea that you know that he has to invoke his um, daughters that um, you know can only understand that women have any worth insofar as you relate to them within a nuclear family setting. Like Morrison would have a lot of um, be in contact with a lot of other women advisors and women parliamentarians. Um, in his many interactions in Parliament House, but they're not the people that he uh, invokes to talk about how he's managed to find sympathy for a rape victim. He invokes his own daughters. And always the kind of um, subtle message is that, you know, women's primary place is in the family. That's how we understand women. And really, if you go out and do these things that are not, you know, the traditional role of women, well, you're kind of on your own. You know, you're, you're... um, you know, you get what you get. That's a world that you don't, you know, really belong in. And, you know, women needs should have sympathy and understanding only really insofar as they're um, fulfilling their role in the nuclear family. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's just the message you're constantly getting from someone like Morrison. And it fits in with his self-declared value system, which is, you know, he's a um, paid up well, uh, member of, 
the Hillsong affiliated I'm church. Sure they you know, they're notorious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they pay a lot. Um, you know, they're notorious for the sort of gender roles that they um, promote. Um, and the, the dark, I mean, the sort of funny side of that is the ridiculous books that the um, one of the main Hillsong founders in Australia has written about how women should um, can sexually please their husbands in the marriage uh, environment. But I guess the dark side of it is that, that you know, her husband, who's father was accused of um, raping children um, you know that they they're involved in covering that up and um, you know uh, Brian Houston who's the co-founder of Hillsong in Australia and a close friend of Scott Morrison's you know failed to report these uh, accusations to police and basically covered up for his uh, uh, rapist father and yet there's, you know, Morrison still happily associates with this guy, tries to get him an invite to the White House when he visits the US, um, you know, that, that this is not seen as of any consequence, um, you know, and then we wonder why why uh, women are treated this way inside, you know, the um, inside the Liberal Party. Um, and that's, you know, because that's Morrison's values. Um, mm. So, you know, he might not be himself doing the raping, but he's contributing to a culture in, in which, you know, all this is uh, sanitised and there's no consequences to it. And and silenced. And, you know, that sense that if you're a woman working in parliament, you're sort of entering a man's space. So you've got to behave like a man. You've got to toughen up and just suck it up, whatever. And sometimes shit like this happens, but, like, that's part of the kind of hurly-burly or something. Like, that's the kind of impression you get and it's, you know uh, – person after person, particularly women, starting to talk about how, well, you know, obviously this is the culture in parliament. It's always been like this. It's not just federal parliament. You know, South Australia now has an investigation into several MPs accused of sexual assault there. Like it would be the same in the Victorian parliament. It's all um, structured to reinforce these um, ideas about gender these kind of normative ideas about the, the role of women. And I think people find that hard to um, conceptualise in a society that they presume should be getting better and better for women. So I think that's where it's so unique in the pages of Red Flag that you then can bring in some explanation for that that um, starts to unpack issues around class. So it may seem, you know, for people who are new to Marxist politics, like what does class have to do in this case with, you know, uh, these sexual assaults in parliament and thinking about the way that women are treated? What's that got to do with class? So can you talk about that for a, for a bit? Yeah, well, I think the, the culture wars, um, you know, are often fought around social issues and it's, you know, things like um, Indigenous rights or uh, women's equality or um, same-sex marriage. These are all seen as um, sort of, you know, they don't go to the core of Australian capitalism and the economy. Um, they're seen as sort of more questions of values. Um, and uh, and fundamentally they're uh, a battle, though, between two sides, Um you know, the, the people that want to promote traditionalism and the um, respect and deference towards the structures of um, capitalism and the existing society and the status quo and the people that want to challenge it, challenge the inequalities 
um, uh, you know, fight for more uh, democratic rights being spread to the people with less power. Um, and I think fundamentally, although it doesn't always appear that way, these are then connected to um, this This um, standoff is connected to a fundamental class difference uh, in capitalism that um, that is the key antagonism uh, in, in um, capitalist society, that between the people who do benefit and want to promote the status quo, the employing class who uh, derive all the benefits uh, of our society and people's compliance with it. And then on the other side, the people that have historically pushed back against that and in so doing have, have managed to win some vestige of uh, democratic control. And part of that struggle has always involved also and necessarily taking up the rights of particularly persecuted minorities. So, you know, uh, um, uh, advancing the right to uh, strike and organise at work has had to involve um, uh, workers from all sorts of different backgrounds participating. And so it's refracted into the culture wars, but fundamentally it is about the two sides of society battling for who has the legitimate right to determine and um, have a say in our social existence and so I think yeah it is it is um, connected to the class struggle mm. which I mean is completely um, absent from all of the kind of talking points that have come up around this and the ways that people have tried to explain um, how does you know because people look at it and go, how does this happen? How does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? Um, when we talk about rape culture, like what does that actually mean and where does it come from? And I think getting underneath and thinking about that fundamental divide in society is so useful because otherwise, I mean, a lot of the discussion has just been about then, well, we need better procedures or we like – we need an independent body to investigate what's been going on or an independent complaints procedure or, you know, these um, MPs should be trained on workplace behaviour. Like, what the fuck? Like, seriously, let's do uh, some some training. Uh, so don't rape someone, you know. Like, if, that was, if it was that uh, simple. Um, but also it's kind of disgusting that that's what, kind of what they come up with. Anyway, um, you know, or yeah, actually counselling services. That's the other thing. It's like, so this is just going to happen. We probably should just provide better support when it inevitably does happen. That's the other discussion which you're like, what the fuck? So we're just going, okay, this is going to happen. Let's just support people who inevitably get raped in parliament, you know? Yeah, and I, I think talking about it as a workplace safety issue is partly about distracting from the culpability that the liberals and the right-wing politics particularly have. But also it's just a recipe to bury it and it goes nowhere yeah. because I just think that, that there's never like going to be any reform of parliament. Yeah. Exactly. Because these people have to be trained in how to um, both how to screw over other people, which brutalises their, their um, attitudes towards other people and makes it much more likely, I think, that they mistreat other people. But then also politics is all about like controlling the narrative and um and uh, winning re-election and looking as though you never you know you're doing everything right and looking strong and um and so they can't they can't 
constitutionally can't acknowledge where there are weaknesses or problems. Um, they have to shove it under the carpet and try and hide it and conceal it, which is what we've seen has happened because they recognise that, um, you know, these things are inevitably going to happen in right-wing politics as they always do and not only in right-wing politics but I think that there's um, more of a problem there. Um, and so they can't afford to be that open about it. They have to find a way to to um, bury it and cover it up and the only way we can have a chance of getting rid of it we need to get rid of parliament we need to get rid of the idea that there's these people that stand above everybody else that have this entitlement that are better should be respected deferred to um and that you know have the right to do whatever they want to other people like we we have to change that whole Mm. culture and it means reconceptualizing how society is organized and what power means and how it might be exercised and finding for a genuinely democratic um, society that where mutual respect and cooperation and um, and solidarity are what are what um, you know underpin decision making and um, not these creation of this privileged elite that have power and um, decision-making power that they can exercise really without reference to any other real human beings that have to deal with the consequences of their decisions. The way of the revolution. And the other kind of broad uh, explanation that people give is this is just a problem Oh, this is just, you know, add it to the list of problems with men or male privilege. Um, but it's, I mean, that seems so obviously not not to be um, a good enough explanation in this case because there's been so many liberal women, uh, liberal party uh, female ministers, people like Amanda Vanstone who will come out um, on the drum or whatever kind of commentary in the media and say, you know, we need due process, like want to water it down, let's talk about, you know, an independent complaints procedure, whatever, this kind of crap. So it's not – you can't just say this is about um, the behaviour of men and that's it. No, definitely not. And I think that there's, um, you know, the sort of smaller liberal opinion that wants to find – an explanation for why and wants to be oppose um, the fact that this sort of stuff goes on in Parliament, but they don't want to sort of draw the conclusions about some of the basic structures of power that, um, you know, create this sort of culture. So they sort of latch on to something simple like it's male power, but I just think it's way oversimplifies it for the reasons you said, like how do you explain the complicity of a whole lot of women um, in this, um, and yeah, and I think you, you you can understand the complicity of the women if you see that what you know in their mind, this is part of what matters is siding with and supporting and um, advancing the social vision that the right has, and you know in, in any war in the war on the social justice warriors that they're waging trying to push back all the gains of women's liberation or all, all, all that sort of those sectors of society, um, you know, transgressions on your own side, yeah, they might be unfortunate, but the bigger picture is fighting the real enemy, which is, you know, the safe schools program or 
the marriage equality campaign or whatever it might be, the, the rebellious, nonconformist people trying to upset the, the apple cart of society, they've, they've always got to be the main enemy. And so, you know, when things, uh, untoward things happen on your side, well, that's not ideal, but it's not, not that important because there's a political vision that you, that you're pursuing. And that's why I think, you know, politics does always trump identity. Like what's the uh, political view that you have um, really matters more than, you know, whether, well, it explains why someone who is a woman can basically be helping to cover up appalling anti-woman attitudes amongst people, you know, in their, on their own side, in their own party, um, in their own sort of um, political circles. And there's plenty more examples of that. Uh, you know, if you think more broadly, um, in relation to politics, like, uh, you know, all of the gay men who join the national front in, or the front national in France, even though it's really homophobic because they think it's more important to be Islamophobic and attack migrants in France. And if, you know, if they have to put up with some homophobia or whatever, that's fine. In the same way that the women in the Liberal Party think, well, we'll just have to, you know, deal with the misogyny and sexism because actually we agree that we want to smash the body, filthy working class and, you know, that's just part of going along with that. So, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right with that. And, I mean, we're going to be uh, putting this episode out around the time of International Women's Day and uh, looking to come kind of the broader um, struggles to, to finish up. Um, you know, because it can feel kind of depressing <laughs> when you look at this. It's like it just happens. You have this Me Too movement that happened and everyone was like, this is great. Now that everyone can see how um, how much of a common experience it is for women to just um, have to live through these fucking awful traumatic experiences and there's so many stories out there and it's so visible now and the same thing now, we can expose the disgusting sexist culture in, in Canberra and isn't that great that it's all out in the open and then it just sort of fades away and people carry on doing what they were doing. What, you know, that pattern continues uh, as we've talked about because there's something deeper going on. There's a uh, the class dynamics and so on. But what can people do or, or what's the alternative to the politics of kind of exposing sexism or thinking about these adjustments that we can make to reporting sexist incidents or sexual assaults? Um, what would you recommend to people listening who are really fired up about all of this, which hopefully you all are because you should be? Um, well, I think, yeah, first it's about like understanding where, um, where the, these sort of politics come from and what's the alternative to them. Like, you know, if they're all arrayed against the social justice warriors, well, how can you be a social justice warrior? How can you be someone that stands up um, against sexism? Um, and, you know, I, I argue revolutionary Marxism is the best guide for understanding that, um, which is not to say that, you know, um, sexual assault or mistreatment of women only occurs on the right wing side of politics. Like obviously everybody is inculcated in the values and the norms of a sexist capitalist society, whether we're critical of it or we end up embracing it and promoting it. 
um, everyone is, is subject to, to the prevailing ideology of capitalism and, um, you know, that can come out in all sorts of ways even, um, even if we sort of in our conscious minds we want to be opponents of the system and uh, supporters of uh, women's equality. Um, but nevertheless, I think having political positions that understand the importance of, um, you know, women being a, a valued and important part of um, the, the struggle of the left and the class struggle to, uh, um, you know, win liberation for all people is has got to be the starting point. Like you need to have a political position that, that um, is in favour of fighting for women's rights and sees it as bound up with the fight generally for social equality, for justice, for um, uh, working class power. Um, and then there's the sort of the practicalities of it and you see that, um, you know, when have women's rights been advanced the most and when have sexist ideas and sexist behaviour been pushed back the most? It's when when our side of politics, when the workers' movement, the organised left has been at its strongest, when people have a sense of their own power their own and not their own individual power but their collective power and, you know, for power to be exercised collectively, you need bonds between the people that are doing that, whether it's in a workplace going on strike. People need to feel that they trust their workmates, that they um, are, are conscious that they have a common interest, that they're all committed to fighting to achieve the goal they've set out to achieve and it's the same, you know, when social struggle is on a um, is more advanced, more people feel that sense of common purpose and solidarity, and they understand the importance of keeping people um, committed to that struggle. Which means um, you need to treat people well. You need to empathise with them. You need to 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 have an environment where everybody feels they can participate and they're respected and they have some control over the direction the struggle's taking or what you're fighting for and how you're doing it. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, um, really in a way no matter what people come together to, to organise around and fight for, um, it starts to, to forge uh, bonds and connections that undermine all the ways in which capitalism tries to divide us and make us feel that, you know, compete with each other or feel each other are the enemy or somehow the problem in society and you get more of a sense at, at those times about, you know, who, why, you know, the, the powerful are our common enemy and, you know, people feel more conscious of the commonalities they have with other uh, ordinary people, whether in their workplace or in a protest movement or whatever. And so I think, you know, that, that level of... Um, uh, understanding and solidarity is very low at the moment because you know the unions are weaker than they've been in a very long time. People don't feel that confident to to organise and um, fight around various social injustices, um, or you know doesn't mean people think everything's great in society, but you know people just can feel a bit hopeless, like nothing can be done. And I think that you know that's a real problem. We need to find a way to turn that around because you know behaviour is not going to improve so long as people feel atomized, isolated, defeated. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there would be enough people out there who are so outraged by um, what's been going on in Parliament. You know, the Cabinet Minister now uh, with the historic allegations against him, like there's enough anger out there that if all the people who are angry <laughs> – came together and fucking went and stormed Parliament House that could actually be quite a thing. You know, like the women's marches when Trump 
was elected were huge because people were, you know, um, felt like they had to, that they had confidence to do that. And there are women in struggle uh, right now um, in various parts of the world who, again, seeing a common enemy um, will take to the streets and it doesn't necessarily, as you say, have to be an issue about women. It could be the all of the women and young women who are involved in Myanmar um, in the struggle against the um, the coup of the army there. You know, like um, I won't go on about <laughs> the struggles that are going on in the world, but that there's um, there is stuff out there to inspire you that I encourage you to to investigate more if you need some of that as well. Um, and also listen to our episode from last year, from March 2020 about the history of International Women's Day and Women in Struggle for some more of that kind of aspect of what we're talking about that we don't have the time to go into here. But I think that has been a really um, interesting discussion. And thank you, Louise, for your time Thanks on for the having podcast. Me. Uh, and we'll put the article in the show notes and we'll put the link to that other podcast and um, a few other things as well. So always check that out. Uh and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have um, sexism to smash and we have a world to win. <laughs>